0: Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today, we'll be talking to the founder of a clothing company called Kiki Pants. Her name is Erin Nicole, and she had the idea for this company while pregnant and on bed rest. She wanted to create better infant clothing, clothes that would dry quickly to prevent baby rashes, and would be stretchy to make it easier to squeeze a wriggling baby into a onesie. In our conversation, she talks about scouting for a bamboo-based textile and then sourcing it directly about what happens when celebrities like Kim Kardashian post photos of their children wearing your product, and about bootstrapping a business slowly and carefully. After the break, Aaron Nicole, founder of KikiPants. Pants. Welcome to Who Runs That? Today on the show, we will be talking about Kiki Pants, the clothing company. And with us is CEO and founder, Aaron Nicole. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So what is the origin of Kiki Pants? How did this business get started?
1: So I was actually put on bed rest um, while I was pregnant with my second son, who uh, I ended up calling Kiki Pants. Um, That's how the company got its name. But I I was stuck for 13 weeks uh, laying in bed, and I don't like to watch TV, (laughs) so it gave me the time that I needed to launch the brand. Um, I already had a son, and I was really motivated to create something that was that that took into account the needs of children uh, first. And so, having that space and time to do that gave me the opportunity to create the brand and get it off the ground from my living room.
0: <laughs> so, this is a uh, it starts as a children's clothing company. And what kind of background did you have did you did you had you done anything before that led you to think that you'd be able to do this?
1: So uh, two things. One, I have a business background. And then separately from that, I think I got quite a bit out of one of my very first summer jobs, which was working in a textile um, jobber, where they would sell directly to designers. So I got the opportunity to see designers and to see how the textiles affected their designs. Um, And that's actually how I began this very differently from most clothing companies. I started from the textile perspective and created my own textile rather than buying what was just on the market. Um, and that's how I got the idea to do that. So I think that that and, and having a bit of a business background was, you know, influential. Me feeling like, hey, I can give this a go and I'm passionate about it. And, you know, when you find something that you're passionate about, like your children, it's, it's a good driver.
0: Yeah, so I want to unpack this about the textiles because one of the things that people say about kicky pants for kids is that the fabric is very soft and also very stretchy. I I have a 10-month-old son and I will disclose he wears some kicky pants clothes. And for me, it's that fabric that you can, it's kind of stretchy and you can kind of wrangle the baby into it even when he's squirming that makes makes them useful for, for putting on a kid. So tell me about what you learned working in textiles and how you were able to apply that to the clothes you were going to make.
1: Yeah. So starting from the textile perspective and considering what a baby needs, because when I very first launched the brand, it was infant only. Um, And what I was thinking about is, well, how do you keep babies dry? Because that's the biggest factor in creating the many problems that we might have with with baby's skin, You know, where they get the rashes and things like that. It's because they're they're wet. And so I started with looking for materials that were still natural, but that were able to wick moisture. And um, the only people who were using bamboo at the time was the military. It was a, it was in military application for a kind of an undergarment that the men or women would wear under their uh, fatigues. And it is found to be antimicrobial, um, wick's moisture better than cotton, and I thought, well, let me see what that feels like. Well, it didn't feel great. It was really um, kind of a rough use of the material, and I realized that that could be improved upon and made, you know, have a better application for babies. Where number one, adding the stretch to make it easy to get on, and then number two, um, actually softening the fibers into a viscose instead of um, using them as a just cut and open fiber it feels more like wool and that's where the fabric came from but it seemed like a no-brainer to me to go with something that actually considers these things that a, a child needs and then from there i realized well this application is really great for everyone you know everyone needs to be dry anybody who's act has an active lifestyle is moving around you know wants to be soft and comfortable so that's how we sort of grew from just infant into toddler and children and men's and women's and home
0: and tell me I'm a fabric idiot so when you you mentioned something about being viscose can you tell me can you explain a little more for the lay listener who might not know a ton about fabrics what that means and how did you first go about sourcing the the actual fabric that you were going to use
1: Um, Yeah, so it's actually a really incredible process. I got to fly to the Hebei district in the north of China and see the bamboo being broken down into this fiber. And it's actually very similar to silk. So rather than just using the raw fiber, it's actually processed um, down into teeny tiny pieces. And then that's put through a softening process. And then rinsed and then put through a softening process and then rinsed and it's it's really beautiful this machine that they have that does this takes up an entire building so you have to walk across the entire building to watch the process at the end of which this fluffy white silky bamboo fiber comes out and that is what is used to uh to make our yarn so we um we control the process from the start to the finish so we know where our bamboo comes from Uh, we source that directly we then, it, we, we mill it directly ourselves with our own specifications. Uh, we use a reactive dye, we do our own prints. So it really allows us to have a lot of say and control in how it feels, how thick it is, how it works. But that, that's how that process sort of works.
0: And how, yeah, and so you've got your fabric and now you've got to find some manufacturers, you've got to make your designs, you've got to figure out where you're gonna sell your products. How did you go about solving some of those problems?
1: Yes. So that's where the 13 weeks comes in, (laughs) um, where I was, you know, literally sitting there all day long. I had the time to interview many factories and there are a lot of, you know, options for where you can find and source factories, but I chose to go with audited suppliers so that I would initially eliminate anything that was not going to be in line with what we feel is right morally. So we, I interviewed over 75 factories, um, that were all audited suppliers and then came down to about 10 where I had a much longer interview process with them. And finally, the same factory that we've worked with for 11 years now, um, is the one that I chose in the beginning. And I feel like taking that time and really selecting a factory that was in line with our values and that I felt like I could directly connect with the factory manager and work with them myself. Uh, was really important to the success of the brand because we've uh, worked together through all of the difficult times with a business. And you have to be a team with your factory. It it becomes really difficult when you're allowing someone else to run that process, but you want control over it.
0: So how did you first go about, once you've got some products, how did you first go about advertising and, and marketing them?
1: So our very first move was to attend a trade show And it was a really scary proposition because our fabric didn't exist in the world at that time. We had to commit to 20,000 yards, which right now sounds really small, but at the time that was enormous. And by the way, I'm not sure if you realize we launched in 2007, 2008, which is the worst financial time to possibly consider launching a business. So there was no help from the bank. You couldn't go into the bank and say, you know, look, we've got this great idea. They They didn't want to hear from you. So we really had to kind of put it on the line and hope that it stuck. Um, And we did our first trade show in New York. It was a children's trade show. And it was quite clear that it was gonna be successful from the beginning. People really connected with the idea. They liked what we were using, how we were doing it. Um, And I think that that helped fuel us to move forward and, and grow.
0: Did you end up doing fundraising or were you kind of bootstrapping this from the beginning?
1: Yeah, no, we we, um, we took a second mortgage out on our house, we kind of put it all on the line like crazy people, and I think, you know, when you start a business, um, sometimes you have to be a little bit whimsical and a little bit crazy to get it off the ground, and especially during that time period, um, and certainly, you know, our, our parents helped us a bit and um, things like that along the way, but we never took investors, and the bulk of our investing was done by ourselves, so... Yeah, and it, and it just started with me uh, working by myself, and very quickly, I needed help. It it was it it was a fast growth process.
0: Tell me about your distribution strategy. What you know? Did you want to be in certain kinds of retail stores? Did you want to be online in certain places? How have your sales evolved over time between retail and online?
1: Yeah. So when we began, we actually did not have our own sales channel at all. Uh, mainly because we felt like it was extremely important to support our retailers and their growth when we were a no-name brand. So for the first five years, we strictly worked on trying to get the best boutique locations that we could. And we actually turned down some larger orders because I, I had this really wonderful experience at a trade show where these two older gentlemen who've been in business for many years said to me, you know, don't ever take an order that's going to break you if that company doesn't take their order. Um, And they had had experience with that. And that really stuck with me. It was kind of like, I felt like, you know, I had my dad in the booth next door, giving me some advice. And so we never did that. So we really kind of controlled our growth and stuck with um, the smaller boutique shops for a very long time until we felt like, okay, we can start taking some bigger orders, we can absorb this. Um, And then at five years, we did launch our retail side, because no one carries the whole collection like we do. Um, And we really wanted a place that represented our entire collection, uh, where customers could see everything that we make in one place. So that's been exciting and a big growth area for us.
0: A lot of times I've noticed that your lines will will sell out or be very hard to get. And I wondered how you think about availability, whether you ever try to make runs limited so they're kind of rare and desirable that way, or is it just sometimes there's trouble keeping up with demand?
1: So we we do things a little differently in that we launch six collections a year. Um, And it became very clear to me early on that this environment, this retail environment is very fast paced. It has changed from many years ago where you know, you had two seasons. There was a spring season and there was a fall season. Now customers are expecting to see something new all the time. And if you want your retailers to be happy, you really need to keep their shelves looking different all the time. So rather than continuing to reproduce something, we give them something different every two months. Um, I think that's probably, you know, unique to us, but it's something that I think has worked well. On the flip side, it also does mean, when we're out of that thing, we're out of that thing and we're not making it again. Um, so it does, and it is very interesting because oftentimes what the retailers will purchase and really like are not necessarily the the items that become extremely popular. And it's really hard for us to know what's, what that's going to be. What's going to be that hard to find item that everyone wants? We don't know. So at the end of the day, you know, the retailers are guessing, we're guessing, and then it's some obscure print that I kind of thought was a little funky, but I liked it. And that's the one that everyone really, really wants. So, you know, the, that's just kind of how, how it is.
0: What are some examples of the, of the products that became hugely popular that surprised you that you might not have guessed?
1: I would say the, f- the first one that really knocked me for a loop was this little snail print. I did a snail print, and this is several years ago, but you know, no one ordered it. Um, I mean the reps were not very keen on it. The so when the reps aren't keen on it, they don't show it to as many retailers because they don't they don't really care for it. I thought it was adorable, but I knew it was kind of funky and a little offbeat. And that print ended up being extremely successful and people still look for it. Um and, and we're talking years later. And, and there are several examples like that where, you know, I'm surprised that a certain print is the one, but um there's no there's no accounting for taste. Everybody's different. So.
0: so you've had a lot of very big time celebrities, people like Kim Kardashian who post social media pictures of their kids wearing kiki pants. And I think people are always curious, is that something where you've coordinated with the celebrity to make the picture happen? How does that happen? And and I also am curious, what kind of sales bump do you see when a celebrity posts a picture like that?
1: Yeah, so it's very interesting because the celebrity factor was not, um, not a big thing for us in the beginning. We, we didn't seek that out and, um, it wasn't something that was hugely motivating for us. Um, however, we were really fortunate in that celebrities are parents, they're parents just like us, right? So if they find something that they love and it speaks to them and it, and their kid likes it, they're going to buy it and they're going to post about it. And I I feel like we've been very fortunate that you know obviously some very big names have discovered the brand and in the beginning that was completely organic um at this point now of course we you know if if somebody has a new baby we'll send a gift um things like that but we really my best moment is when somebody just discovers it on their own and they're kind enough to post something um we don't pay for those posts that's not part of our business plan I know there are many people who do and, uh, you know, it may be it works for them. But I feel like when a celebrity goes out and purchases something and they choose that thing, it's more authentic, first of all. And second of all, you know, I think it actually comes across that way. You know, this is something they chose, they picked, they care about. And so when they post something, it's just more genuine. And, you know, and I'm very thankful for those people for doing that for us. And we certainly do see a sales bump, and you know, interest in the brand. They've introduced their, you know, customers or, you know, their fans to us, and that's just a really positive thing for our brand, and also just very kind of them because they don't have to do that.
0: You have a section of your site that's dedicated to gender-free clothes and colors and clothing designs that I guess can be worn by any kid. I know that that's been a kind of important trend in in children's clothing. I wondered about the origin of, of that um, part of your site and what the response has been like to that.
1: Um, yeah, it's been an interesting experience. For us, it was kind of a no-brainer. The idea that children have their own idea. I mean, our, our kids have gotten older, so I have a 13-year-old now and an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old and a 7-year-old. So I have all of these kids that sort of inform the things that I do, and I get to check in with them. And they don't want to be told what is a boy and what is a girl outfit. They don't want to be told what is a boy and what is a girl color. That's generationally not accurate for them. It means nothing to them. So we're perpetuating something that no longer exists in this generation's view. You know, pink is not for girls. So we really wanted to create a space where it was just about shopping the brand. It wasn't about shopping for a girl and it wasn't about shopping for a boy because at this point we're offering clothing that's for children and you know teenagers even, old enough where they're gonna shop for themselves and they don't wanna be told what's a boy and what's a girl thing to wear. Um, so we did launch that uh, with our Kenya collection this year. And of course, you know that's a year in the making because I'm out a year with making a collection so I've been excited for that to hit and to happen for a long time and uh it was an interesting experience to see both the support that we received and how many people just felt really positively about it and then again the really sad and difficult responses that we received from people who felt like we were uh encouraging children to have a certain sexuality or we were encouraging children to cross dress or things like this um you know and and just seeing that there are definitely people who are unwilling to move forward in that area and realize that that colors and clothes actually don't mean any of those things and nor, nor are we telling people what to do or to shop that way we're telling people here's everything you shop your way you know, what works for you? What works for your family? And we are an all-inclusive brand, and we, we want people to feel comfortable being who they are, especially our children.
0: Tell me about the process of making a new collection. Um, how does it begin? And take me through the steps of, of creating a collection that's going to uh, you know appear a year out from when, I, when you begin the process.
1: So one of the first things I do is I, I always come up with a theme. And once I have my theme... I like to sit down with my children and sometimes they're friends. Uh, and I say to them, okay, so here's what I'm thinking, you know, the theme is this year. And, you know, I do six collections in a theme and I just, we, I just start asking them, throw out every idea you have. What do you guys think? And they come up with the coolest things. And some of their ideas are crazy and offbeat and they don't have anything to do with the theme, but I just write everything down um, because at the end of the day, I have a customer in my house that can inform my designs and give me ideas that I may not have thought of. So that's step one. Uh, step two, particularly if I'm doing something on, you know, a country or a play, you know, or a science or certain things where I don't feel like I have enough information myself, maybe I haven't been to that country. I do a lot of research on my own, uh, watching documentaries, reading, you know, finding out. What's important to that location? What should be included? What shouldn't be occluded? What might be offensive? Um, Just trying to represent whatever it is in the best way possible, in the most inclusive way possible. Um, And so after that process, then I I start to narrow down what it is that I'm going to do. And then I still hand draw everything. So it was on paper. And I have, in the last year, moved to drawing with the Apple Pen on the iPad, which you, you would think would be faster, but actually it makes me more meticulous and <laughs> particular. But I do still hand-draw everything, and then uh, I send that to our graphic designer to turn into vector art. So she does the repeats, and, and then we go to the colors. So what are my colors? And, you know, dyeing those colors and making sure that we can actually achieve that Pantone color that I've chosen, uh, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And and then the process goes from there. So once the prints are decided, we do strike offs with the prints, make sure that everything turned out correctly. Often they're rejected and they go back and forth a few times until we get exactly what we want. And then the process of creating samples begins.
0: So you branched out from starting with Clothing for very young children, and then slightly older children, and then adults. With each of those steps and branching out, what what went into the decision to do that, and what were some of the challenges that changed as you started making clothes for different kinds of people?
1: Yeah, so that's been such an interesting and exciting learning experience for me because nothing stays the same, and and I think with any business, if you aren't willing to move forward and uh, change what you're doing, you you kind of stagnate, and then you and then you lose it. And I I need to maintain that passion and that love for what I'm doing. And so going into new areas has been really exciting and fun for me. Um, So starting with infant, you know, I had babies at the time and it was some of the needs of a baby were really obvious to me when I was designing. But as I started thinking about older children, I really had to do a lot of research on, you know, what's selling, what do they want to wear? Not what do their parents pick out for them, but what do they want to wear? And what feels most comfortable to them, and what are they likely to put on again? And trying to design fashion forward pieces that were also, you know, really not about sexualizing children and making them look like mini mommy, but really meeting them where they are with their own needs and creating fun things that were still respectful of them as a child. Um, and, and similarly, when I went into the adult market, you know, women and men come in very different shapes and sizes. What works for each person is different, so I've had to kind of relearn through the process what what works for different body types and what you know what people will purchase again, and then you know continue to evolve. Um, and similarly, now we are moving into home, and that's been a whole other experience for me. We we launched a sheet um, collection, and we did it as a soft launch only on our website. I wasn't sure how it would be, you know, received because it's very different from everything else we do. And we sold out of the kings. We, there's, you can't get a king sheet on our site now. So we're in production again. But, it, you know, you just kind of have to roll with and learn from each of these processes when you begin something new and be willing to be flexible and grow and change with that thing.
0: I guess there's always some risk when you have a brand that's known for one thing, and then you try to extend it and and try to redefine what it encompasses. Were you ever worried about diluting what the brand stood for and that people were going to get confused about what Kiki Pants is?
1: Um, Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I think we have done it slowly and over the course of 11 years rather than all at once. But our initial business plan, and from the get-go, our model was to be a family brand, rather than just simply serving one particular section of the family. I just love right now where I'm seeing all these posts of people in their holiday outfits and everyone from mom to dad to the dog is dressed in kicky pants. It just makes my day. It's so fun to see that. But we had to grow there. And and part of that has been making product that didn't work. You know, we tried to launch a paper products line. It was beautiful. Um, I loved it. You know, we we did it thicker. We did our bags thicker than most people. Our wrapping paper was really nice, but we kept the price point low. We thought, this is going to be great. People love our prints. They'll love it on wrapping paper. Well, they didn't want to accept us as a paper products brand. That wasn't our niche. And so rather than holding on to it and becoming obsessed with the idea that, no, we're going to make this work, we said, okay, that didn't work. We let that go. We move on. Um, and I think that's really important through all of these processes, even, you know, with an individual style, say, that I've come up with. If I see it's not working, I let it go. Um, and that's how you grow in a, in a good direction, where you're taking your customers with you instead of leaving them behind.
0: Would you ever do an IPO and take the company public?
1: Is <laughs> an interesting question. Many people have asked me that. I don't, it's, it hasn't really been something I've thought about, but you never know. It's a possibility.
0: Oh, come on. You've never thought about it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, only only in that people ask. I mean, they certainly ask us, but it's hard to imagine ourselves as that large. I mean, keep in mind when we started, you know, I was working out of a garage, and all the clothes were hanging from the ceiling, and you know, the boxes arrived to our house, and it was it was a tiny operation, and so we sort of are still surprised at how large it's become, and and even although we've controlled the growth, we we have double digit growth year on year. So it's big. It changes all the time. And so thinking of ourselves as big as we are is is still kind of hard to wrap our heads around sometimes, I think, even for our employees.
0: So tell me a little bit about the growth of the company. How has your number of employees grown over the years?
1: So yeah, where we started with um, only a couple of people, and many of those people are still with us today. Um, They've been with us for all 11 years, and their positions have grown uh, we now have an offices in, our offices in L.A. and then offices on Bainbridge Island uh, near Seattle and then our warehouse in Paulsbow. So we have about 50 employees at this point. And we have managed to keep very lean. That's been important to us. Rather than having a lot of extra people doing things, we really assign a real role to each person who works for us. And we have incredible employees and we do things a little bit differently there. Rather than hiring somebody to be a certain thing, we may be looking at them for a certain type of position. However, we really look at the individual and what that person brings to the table. And more often than not, we tailor the position to that person, to what that person can do. And I think this both allows autonomy and for that, that person to get to go all the way with the things that they're best at, but it also allows us to not have a huge number of extra people because we're, we're putting people in positions that maybe don't feed their desires and don't give them the chance to do all of the things they wanna do, and they're, they're only working on a fraction of what they could be doing. Um, when you give people those reins and you let them do the thing that they're great at, they really produce quite a bit more and they're much happier.
0: Okay. I want to ask a few questions about you. You've mentioned that you have a business background. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that background was and how it prepared you to take this on?
1: Um, yeah, I did. And I, I went to school for business. I don't actually think I learned an exceptional amount that I've really applied um, from school. I think when I was going through school, I had a little hair salon business on the side. I always like to work for myself and I went and got my hair license so I could earn money while I was in school. I would say that I actually learned more from that experience, from growing that tiny business, than I did from anything else. And then actually having this business myself and being willing to grow and change and research and learn as I went along um, and learn from other people who've done it and who've been successful. I think that's actually informed us more than anything else in my background.
0: You mentioned to me as we were setting up the audio to do this interview that you're you're talking to me from a, a little cottage on Bainbridge Island. This sounds like an idyllic work environment. I would love you to tell me a little bit more about this cottage and, w- and what your typical day looks like as the CEO of Kiki Pants.
1: Yeah, so I've, I'm very fortunate to have this little cottage. It's separate from our regular offices. Um, I don't do well with interruption. And I can be very social. So it's hard for me to be in an office setting where, you know, there's all these different exciting things being discussed and I have, you know, information that I'd like to throw in there. And so for me to be on my own in a separate, you know, beautiful little space where I can sit here because oftentimes it's for hours and hours working on, you know, whether it be drawings or spreadsheets, I, I, you know, have a beautiful place to be. And I feel very fortunate to do that. But I also have a place that's not distracting, where I can be very quiet and focused. And I think that's really an important one for me.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Erin Nicole, founder of Kiki Pants. Okay, I'm going to move on to our lightning round now. Are you ready? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad. Sorry, yeah. we're okay. going to do it anyway. Let's do it. Meetings. Are you pro or con? How do you run your meetings? Do you have any particular ways you like to run a meeting?
1: I don't like meetings. Um, I think that emails are almost invariably better and give people the chance to really think before they speak and you know take something in, mull it over, and come back with something real rather than their initial gut reaction, which can often be emotional. So it's actually my preference to give people that time I do periodically have meetings, but I find that they're less effective than giving people the moment to think about the things that you want them to address and then addressing them.
0: What's the one mistake you've made in the past that you've learned the most from?
1: I would say doing products that, you know, may be too far out of our reach. Like I mentioned, the, the um, paper products, you know, jumping into something where we didn't have the market for it and we, you know, didn't really have the background for it. Was that was a big learning experience for me? Seeing okay, you know, you have to ease people into things. You can't just jump in a different direction and expect them to jump with you.
0: If I told you tomorrow that you're fired, you can never again do anything even remotely related to Kiki Pants or anything like what you're doing now, what would you want to do with your life?
1: Wow. Um, You know, I think the first thing I would do is spend as much time as I can with my children because I feel like this is going so incredibly fast and it's such an amazing experience to be their mom. So um, I I would probably put my focus there for a bit.
0: Erin Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's our show for today. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews and Cleo Levin. TJ Raphael is the senior producer for Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen. You can email us at who runs that at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.